Please open your Bibles with me to the book of Jude. We'll be reading verses 5 through 7 this evening in the Pew Bible. This is on page 1,308. Let us give ear now to the reading of the holy and inerrant and life-giving word of the living God. Jude, beginning in verse 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling... He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do come to you now with your word open before us, and we would ask for your divine aid in understanding it and in applying it. We ask, O Lord, that you would help us uh, to receive from your word that which you would have for us, for our good, and most importantly, for your glory. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I recently came across an image of a warning sign that someone had posted online. The sign was purportedly to be from the Newcastle Tramway Authority regarding the danger associated with the, the wires that powered the trolley cars. And the sign reads, Warning, touching wires causes instant death. $200 fine. I guess you may ignore that warning to your apparel one way or another. Warning signs are only as useful as the one who takes heed of them. Spiritual warnings that we read of in the Bible, of course, take on a much more serious tone and bear a much more significant meaning, not only for this life, but even with regard to our eternal destiny and to disregard warnings particularly warnings of the nature of those that we will read about in our text this evening, would be the height of folly. These verses are are the beginning of a section of the book of Jude, beginning in verse 5 through verse 16, all of which serve to prove the statement that Jude made in verse 4 regarding those who had crept in unnoticed, who had been spreading false teaching in the church. So Jude is here in verses 5 through 16, beginning to show how and why these intruders are subject to condemnation and judgment, and in so doing, he is exhorting God's people to beware of them, to not be like them, nor to be seduced by their perversion of the gospel of grace. In this text, Jude gives us three ancient, yet ever-relevant, Warnings that we ignore to our peril. The first thing I want to point out about these warnings is that they are gracious reminders. 
And Jude begins by telling them that he's not dispensing any kind of new information to them. Uh, I think the sense given by the ESV can sort of come across as if this is information that they had forgotten. But that is not the sense of Jude's reminder. He's assuming their readers to be already knowledgeable of these things. In fact, the sense in, in the Greek is that he's being complimentary of their knowledge. It reads something more like, I know that you know all these things, but let me remind you of the meaning and the gravity of these things. Gene Green explains, Jude assumes that his readers know the history of God's past judgments and is desirous that they apply the lessons learned from the judgment narratives to their present situation. Now, the backdrop for this letter is that, is that these certain influencers have, have crept in uh, unnoticed, subtly, and they have perverted the grace of God into a license for, for immorality and sin. Their, their supposedly high view of grace was being used to convey the idea that sin, and in particular gross sexual sin, uh, was not only okay, but it was approved because of grace. We, we need to be on high alert when someone says or even implies or lives as if that the grace of Jesus means that there's no need for change. Calvin uh, explains Jude is using these three particular particular examples because they contain within them contempt for grace. And Jude wants to make it clear that this is no small matter. Thus, uh, Jude's purpose in these verses and in the following verses that we'll see in later weeks, he's not just out to give a blanket condemnation. In fact, he's not even writing to these intruders directly. His purpose is to urge and exhort the believers who are now at risk of being deceived by those intruders and led astray. There, there is a pastor's heart behind the harsh language that Jude uses in, these, in this section of the book. Uh, th- this is like that scene in, in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress when Christian and Hopeful arrive in the delectable mountains where they meet a group of shepherds. There, there is that picture of the local church as it's gathered on the Lord's Day where weary pilgrims are refreshed and, and encouraged and warned. The shepherds would bring them to a hill called Error with a steep cliff over the edge, and they saw many down there that had been dashed to pieces by falling from the top of that hill called Error. This was an example to others to take heed of climbing too high or coming too near the edge of that hill called error. The purpose of those shepherds in the delectable mountains was to incite watchfulness and and care in the pilgrims on their journey, and Jude is doing the exact same thing with these gracious reminders. There is grace in these warnings for God's people. The first warning that Jude alerts his readers to is the warning against Tragic apostasy. In the first ancient example that Jude uses to warn God's people, he takes us back to the, to the greatest, in fact, the archetypal redemptive event in the history of the Old Testament people of God, the exodus from Egypt. Here, here is the mountain peak of Old Testament uh, salvific history in which God's people were, were gloriously freed from crushing bondage and, and oppression, have, having cried out to the Lord for mercy. Here was a people 
in this Exodus generation who had personally witnessed the the power of God on full display to free them, the the, the glorious, supernatural, miraculous event of the parting of the the Red Sea, the the plagues that tormented the Egyptians, the, the divine provision of food and water in the wilderness, the protection from their enemies and the destruction of their enemies, all of the glorious redemptive events that had been on full display to them and for them. And yet, tragically, because of their unbelief, Jude tells us they were destroyed. This reference harkens back to that which was recorded in Numbers chapter 14 and in other places as well, when after the spies came back from the promised land to report not only of the bounty of that land, but also of the bad report of what they claimed were undefeatable foes who would no doubt destroy them. And then the people, in their utter disbelief, decided instead that they would rather go back to Egypt. The Lord replied to Moses in Numbers 14.11, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? The Lord would go on to pronounce judgment on that generation. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. Numbers 14, 32. Because of their unbelief, their, their refusal to trust in the promises of God, the same people who were so gloriously brought out of the house of bondage tragically suffered the wrath of God by being destroyed in the wilderness. Now, Jude is not saying that every single Israelite who died in the desert certainly, therefore, went on to suffer eternal wrath. Now, if they persisted in their unbelief, refusing to repent and to trust themselves to the mercy of God, then surely they did go on to die without salvation. But we may hope that many of them did repent and trust in the Lord and receive the forgiveness of sins given the ample opportunity there would have been to do so over the next 40 years in the wilderness in the presence of God and his ministries among them. What Jude is doing in this example is what the New Testament in various other places does with this and other Old Testament events. Uh, He's using it as as a type, pointing forward to a fulfillment in which is a greater reality, Here, Jude is using the the Exodus generation and their destruction typologically in a negative way. Paul spoke of the Exodus generation typologically uh, in the same manner in 1 Corinthians 10 and other places, and he makes this comment. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Richard Balkum explains how that statement by Paul, together with the reference to this exact same wilderness generation in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, shows how Christian tradition used the experiences of the people of God in the period of the Exodus as instructive for the eschatological people of God, that's all of us believers living in the last days, Jude depends on this typological tradition for his own application to the false teachers. In other words, Jude is is using this as an Old Testament type which finds its fulfillment in the final judgment of apostate believers. 
Jude is warning his readers about the certain judgment that is going to come on the apostate teachers that have crept in among them and that they might not be seduced by their sophistry and the perversion of God's grace. And the warning is this. Just like those who escaped Egypt and were part of the number of God's people, you may witness God's saving power by being part of the covenant community And by being part of the church, you can experience tremendous privileges. You can witness his power and grace, and yet you can never actually partake of saving faith. You can persist in your unbelief and turn away to eventually suffer the tragedy of eternal wrath and despair. This is a warning against apostasy. The the, the tragedy of, of turning your back and walking away from it all in unbelief and refusing to ever repent and return to the Lord. Jesus said, he who endures to the end will be saved in Matthew 24, 13. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, Paul speaks of those who will one day be presented holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This is not a denial of grace or, or an affirmation in any way of our salvation being dependent upon our own performance. This is more along the lines of Paul's language in Philippians 2. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What Jude is warning them against is a, is a flippant view of grace, gutted of its power to change, power to grow, power to persevere in faith and obedience. The second warning that Jude warns his readers about is the warning against rebellious autonomy. We've seen the warning against tragic apostasy. Now we see the warning against rebellious autonomy. The first thing to consider in this warning in verse 6 is what event is being referred to by Jude. Jude writes, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. There are two possibilities for what Jude is referring to here. Several older commentators take this to be a referral to the original fall of angels, which preceded the fall of man in Genesis 3. I would argue that that view is difficult to maintain based on the language of Jude verses 6 and 7. The other possibility is that Jude here is referring to events that are mentioned in the opening verses of Genesis chapter 6. There we read of the union between the sons of God and the daughters of man. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Genesis 6, 1 and 2. Now, if Jude is referring to this event, and I'm going to argue that he is, that means that he understood that description in Genesis 6 to mean that evil fallen angels lusted after women and married them and bore children to them. 
And without going into all of the exegesis of Genesis 6, 1 through 4, it does seem undeniably clear that Jude understands that passage in this way and thus refers to it here for several reasons. For one, this was the universal understanding of the meaning of that passage in Genesis during Jude's day and even much after. In fact, for the first five centuries of the Christian church history, this was the, if not unanimous, the prevailing view of that passage in Genesis. Jude here is very clearly using language from a book that was current in that day, the book of First Enoch, which refers to that event in that understanding. And you will remember that Jude has already stated that these readers already knew all of these things. So if Jude means to refer to a, a pre-Genesis 3 original fall of angels, it's extremely likely that that would have been something that his readers were already aware of. Thus, his, his use of this event would have been a confusing example, to say the least, especially given the nearly identical language he's using to current Jewish literature of his day, which understands Genesis 6 as speaking about fallen angels. Thus, it's difficult to assume that Jude's readers would have understood this in any way other than the view that Genesis 6 is talking about fallen angels. The clearest reason, however, we have to understand that Jude is referring to this particular understanding of Genesis 6 is is the link he makes in verse 7. Look at verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. Uh, Literally, the phrase that our ESV has translated, which likewise indulged, uh, would be translated in a similar manner to these. Now, now the these that's there in the Greek language has no other appropriate grammatical antecedent than the angels of verse 6. And so it's difficult, if not impossible, to deny that Jude clearly intended his readers to associate in some way the angel's sin mentioned in verse 6 with the immorality and the homosexuality of Sodom and Gomorrah. If Jude intended otherwise, the way he links these two is quite difficult to remedy. One commentator says this, whatever sins the angels committed involved unnatural sexuality analogous to that of homosexuality. Now, Jude's emphasis in this, his reference to this event is on the rebellion and the autonomy of the angels. He writes in verse 6, the first part, the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling. Uh, The language there of not keeping to their proper place is the idea of a a proper realm, a proper sphere, a proper boundary. Uh, The parallel uh, phrase that he links there when he says they left their proper dwelling is the idea of of abandoning that which was prescribed for them. They, They crossed over, they broke out, if you will, of the divinely imposed boundaries that they had no right to cross. It was a rejection of the authority of God. It was an abandonment of their proper place, a a seizing of autonomy and self-rule, and it was rebellious, a a casting off of all restraint, a refusal to stay within God-ordained boundaries, particularly, as Jude makes us believe, in the realm of sexual immorality. 
What did Paul say in 1 Thessalonians? This is the will of God for you, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. God has placed boundaries, particularly in that realm. He's not saying here that there's no forgiveness for these things. What he's talking about is the unrepentant engaging in them, in a rebellious autonomy and a refusal to repent. Now, now regardless of what event one assumes Jude to be referring to here, his point at the end of the day essentially remains the same. Here's what David Helm writes. Jude's message for us is clear. Whenever we find ourselves succumbing to the temptations to live autonomously, to do as we please, to reject authority, to remove any notion of proper place or position, we are waging war against heaven and are in danger of becoming subjects of judgment. Think of the famous way R.C. Sproul defined sin as cosmic treason. Jude would warn us as well to beware the danger of that rebellious autonomy. Now the weight of the impression that Jude means to leave us with lies in the results of the angel's rebellious autonomy. He uses a play on words, which is not quite obvious in the English language here, to emphasize the consequences of what the angels had done. When he says the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority. Literally, they did not keep, is the word in the Greek language. The angels did not keep to their proper sphere. They, they rebelled in independent autonomy. And because they did not keep, now God is keeping them. They have not kept to their proper place. Now they're going to be held, kept in permanent bondage, in chains, in gloom. Now, the Bible doesn't really elaborate much on that language of, of bondage and imprisonment and darkness. Though That word in, in Greek poetry was, was for the, the utter blackness of the underworld. It's, it's a common ancient way of expressing divine punishment. But Jude's div- vivid description here is meant to drive home the misery and the dreadfulness of their condition and their inevitable end that is coming. Norman Hillier explains, we are, we are not intended to imagine a literal dungeon in which fallen angels are fettered. Rather, Jude is vividly depicting the misery of their conditions. Uh, free spirits and celestial powers as once they were are now shackled and impotent. Shining ones, once enjoying the marvelous light of God's glorious presence, are now plunged in profound darkness. And not only is the current condition of these angels a dreadful one due, due to the great height from which they fell, part of the dread is the, is the experience that they currently undergo of awaiting what is even worse to come. The language here of, of that they are being kept until the judgment of the great day. The fate has been sealed. There is no way out until the great day. And Jude is arguing here for the sake of his readers from the greater to the lesser. Here's how Paul Gardner puts it. If the certainty of final judgment is true for angels who have rejected God's lordship and have become immoral, how horrifically true it will also be for those who teach such immorality in the church of Christ. That the angels who had unutterable, even incomprehensible 
privileges and pleasures should fall and thus suffer inevitable judgment, how much more ought God's people to watch that we do not transgress God's boundaries and sin against the privileges he has established for us and given to us. Now the third warning Jude gives us is the warning against unbridled immorality. Jude now in verse 7 directs our attention to the quintessential example in the entire Bible of immorality and judgment. The focus in Jude 7 in its language about Sodom and Gomorrah is on the the unbridled and unnatural sexual immorality and thus the resulting certain and severe judgment. His language referring to Sodom is, is vivid and unmistakably clear. The idea here of which they, when, when the ESV says they indulged in sexual immorality, the idea really there is a complete lack of restraint. Uh, it's, an, it's an emphatic term here used for sexual immorality. It's the only time this word is used in the New Testament, in fact, instead of the normal language for sexual sins. Uh, it's the idea of they gave themselves over. To immorality, the, the idea that they pursued unnatural desire, that language is some have translated as, as, as hankered after. They, they went after and pursued this unnatural desire. And, and what that, uh, the ESV translates as unnatural desire, literally in the Greek text is they went after different flesh. A naturalness is the emphasis, but some have argued that that phrase, different flesh, is referring to the lust after the angels. If you remember the episode in Genesis chapter 19 when the angels came to see if there were even ten righteous people in the city of Sodom, they would spare it. Uh, And when the angels were there, of course, the men of the city went after them. Uh, Thus, this is, according to some, a reference to the lust after angels. Uh, The idea here of of the issue is really an issue of crossing a species boundary, if you will. Here's what Christopher Green says to that. The sin intended by the men of Sodom was emphatically not that of lust after angels, since they had no idea of the spiritual significance of their visitors. Furthermore, the judgment over Sodom was already in place prior to that event. Uh, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them, was the shocking demand in Genesis chapter 19, verse 5. John Calvin explains, "To, to go after strange flesh is the same as to be given up to monstrous lusts. For we know that the sodomites, not content with the common manner of committing fornication, polluted themselves in a way the most filthy and detestable. Moreover, uh, Peter Davids very helpfully points out that in the Jewish literature of Jude's day and before, homosexual activity was viewed as crossing just such a boundary, a species boundary, in that none of the other references is at all concerned that the strangers involved in Genesis 19 involved were angels, it is more likely that Jude is thinking of homosexual activity as the different type of flesh, different not from themselves, but from the women they were supposed to desire. Now, with that in mind, it seems impossible 
to reconcile what Jude refers to here with how some modern scholars have attempted to downplay or even negate or erase the role that homosexuality played in the condemnation of Sodom and Gomorrah. Most certainly, these cities were guilty of more sins than just that. They were guilty of a wide assortment of wickednesses. But at the top of that list, in in the biblical witness and in various witnesses all over Jewish literature of the day, was the perversion of the very order of nature to which their debauchery had sunk. There there are multiple references in Jewish literature of the day to the the open and and well-known homosexuality in Sodom. Josephus, uh, others speak of this. Many of these are are too uncomfortable to even read publicly. One of these extra-biblical sources speaks of Sodom as having, quote, changed the order of nature. And and, and suffice it to say, Jude verse 7 alone, this, this divinely inspired and authoritative text that tells us how to understand Genesis 19, Jude 7 alone renders the view that homosexuality was not the reason for their condemnation impossible to maintain. And it's important for us to remember once again the context of these warnings in Jude is that there are those who are leading them to believe that it is okay. Jude is ferociously at this point looking out for his flock. He's warning precious believers who are who are in danger of being deceived about a clear and present danger by those who who apart from repentance are going to be judged for their sins and for their teaching. Jude is warning these saints that they should hold firm to to biblical convictions and a biblical lifestyle in the midst of a culture uh, and, and apparently even a church context that made it quite difficult to do so. Here's what Gene Green says. Jude's readers would readily understand the implications for their present situation. They were to avoid the sodomites' behavior and in so doing would avoid its consequences. Now, I'll say that even even a compassionate plea for repentance in our own culture, even now, would be regarded as bigotry, hate speech. The the, the culture is, is pressing around us with this particular issue like a vice at an alarming rate with enormous pressure uh, and we do well to heed this first century warning of Jude. The, the pressure for the church to change its view on this particular topic is increasing at, at an all-time rate. And, and even in the evangelical world, uh, people are beginning to cave. Denominations are splintering over this particular issue faster than any of us ever would have believed even ten years ago. And what we have in Jude in, in, the, in the first century, 2,000 years ago, is a church in the midst of, of, of a broader pagan culture in which sexual sins, including this particular sexual sin and beyond, are not only tolerated but celebrated and promoted. That does not sound all too unfamiliar to us. And if you add to that the reality that, that these false teacher intruders have slipped in secretly to the church and are beginning to exercise an influence within the church that would lead the church to believe that these things are really not all that big a deal or permissible entirely because grace. 
Even today in our own conservative circles, you have the argument being made that, that in and of itself, the, the, the temptation to and the orientation, if you will, toward homosexuality is not in and of itself sinful. But one of the implications of the way Jude describes this sin in its unnatural nature is that even the temptations to such a thing are in and of themselves sinful results of the fall and they must be thus mourned, mortified, continually turned from in repentance. This is no small burden for those who may struggle with such a thing. That is why the spiritual warfare that Jude calls people to that must be waged is so critical. It's no small matter for Jude and thus for the church then to speak with clarity and compassion on this altogether relevant and massive issue. And it is objected, certainly it could be objected, that this sort of speech is is unloving. This is the constant refrain of our culture. In fact, this sort of speech is considered to be even worse than unloving. Some of that is due to the fact that this particular type of sin has been in our postmodern cultural milieu uh, tied to a person's core identity. Uh, that's wildly problematic, but that's another conversation. Uh, but I would reply that, that it is the furthest thing from unloving to warn someone of imminent danger and encourage them to turn to the Lord in repentance and faith and trust for grace. Now Jude says that this serves as an example by their undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. This is the imagery of the divine judgment that Genesis 19 tells us about so vividly. The Lord rained down sulfur from the Lord out of heaven. And the word used here is, is serve as an example that Jude uses really is, 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 is more emphatic than it sounds. It's something that's been put forward as a public display Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah throughout the rest of the Old Testament and into the New would become essentially synonyms for judgment. And and in their severe judgment, here here was a billboard, if you will, to point forward to the divine judgment that will take place against all who practice immorality. Here's what Christopher Green says, the horrific fireball of destruction that hit Sodom and the other cities serves as an example to us of God's final judgment. This is, this is a picture and a horrifying one at that of something far greater and something far more horrific. In fact, there, there are several testimonies from uh, Jewish sources up until Jude's day even, uh, Josephus even, and some others that suggest that the area of Sodom and Gomorrah may still have been smoldering up until the day of Jude. Richard Bauckham comments, Jude means that the still-burning sight of the cities is a warning picture of the eternal fires of hell. And that's the language Jude uses here, eternal fire. Of course, that language echoes the same language as that of our Lord, who spoke more of hell than anyone else in the entire Bible. Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, Matthew 25, 41. And so, yes, this sin is, is, is in a very real sense, singled out by Jude as more heinous in the sight of God than others. And yet the Bible is also not unclear. 
about the judgment coming against all wickedness. In fact, according to the Bible's way of accounting for guilt, there are degrees of judgment based on our access to revelation. Some of the most chilling words in the New Testament, Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, verses 23 and 24, speaking to the town of Capernaum where he had disclosed so much of himself in word and deed. And he says this, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Dale Ralph Davis comments, Sodom, Jesus says, still faces the last judgment. But there is something worse than Sodom's premier offense related in Genesis 19. There's something worse is being engulfed with the privileges and power of Jesus as Capernaum had been and being unmoved by it all. Those who have seen and known the most about Jesus and have yet hardened their hearts against him and turned away face a terrifying end. Well, what is the gospel answer to all of these warnings? All of these examples surely are warnings, and they are simply a shadow and and a foretaste, if you will, description of what will happen in the future on a far, far greater scale. Uh, Jude's choice of words actually conveys the sense of undergoing not just punishment, but suffering eternal fire as a just punishment. The gospel answer is that the judge is also the Savior Notice that even in Jude refers to Jesus in his pre-incarnate state is the one who saved the people out of Egypt. Jesus is also the one who destroyed those same people. Paul makes it very clear uh, to the church of Corinth that they were made up of, in part, with, with former drunkards and former adulterers and even former homosexuals. Such were some of you, he said, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. For those who are unbelievers, nothing can prevent the certain, inevitable, eternal judgment other than refuge in this Jesus, the friend of sinners. Flee, flee. Flee from the wrath that is to come. Take refuge in him. Turn in faith to the one who suffered the torments of eternal wrath when he shed his blood on the cross of Calvary for everyone who will turn to him. Come be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Come have your sins washed away. Uh, The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, forgiveness receives. If you've walked away, come back. Come back. If you're mired in sin, thinking that there's no way that forgiveness could be for you, his blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Come and taste the calm of sins forgiven at the foot of his cross and have your sins washed away in the precious blood of the lamb who was slain. Well, those shepherds uh, that Bunyan describes for us in the Delectable Mountains also showed the pilgrims other scenes of warning. 
those that had not escaped the doubting castle and had had their eyes gouged out by that giant despair and were doomed to thus wander among the tombs, a fate that Christian and hopeful knew well that they had escaped. And upon realizing what fate they had escaped from, they looked at one another with tears gushing out. They were also shown the, the byway to hell where were hypocrites who at all one point had all claimed to be pilgrims along the way, just as they are. Some went farther, some not very far at all. And they said to one another when they realized this, we have need to cry out to the strong one for strength. Every believer now in this life, knowing full well the hidden evils of our own heart, and the potential that every single one of us carries to fall into grievous sin. Every believer, to varying degrees, knows how grace has carried us, how how grace warns us even in passages such as this, how grace strengthens us, gives us hope to go on, And, and we can agree with those wonderful lines, Hither by thy help I have come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. And when we do arrive at home, having been carried all the way by grace, with full clarity we will see that it is by God's mercy we have escaped the fate of eternal damnation that we all, every one of us, justly deserved. And then we will fully grasp the magnitude of God's grace that we only grasp at a glimpse even now. Robert Murray McShane put it this way, when I hear the wicked call on the rocks and the hills to fall, when I see them start and shrink on the fiery deluge brink, then, Lord, shall I fully know, and not till then, how much I owe. Chosen not for good in me, wakened up from wrath to flee, hidden in the Savior's side, by the Spirit sanctified, teach me, Lord, on earth to show by my love how much I owe. Heavenly Father, would you press to our hearts the severeness of these warnings and the magnitude of your grace that is available to us in Jesus. Oh Lord, strengthen us in the gospel this evening as we go out into your week. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.